Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. So, so chapter 10 is a big bugbear of me for Miller-Hyman, which is the difference between wins and results. Why is this a problem for you, Mike? Yeah. I'll tell you exactly why it's a problem. Because A, I don't think anybody knows how to do it. Right. At all. Uh, but Miller-Hyman does define it well. Um, and I think that creates a problem. But I think also, if we, if we talk about wins and results properly... You're going to have to expand on it for our audience, Mike. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, Johnny, you give me a definition of wins and results, then I'm going to pick a hole in it because you're obviously a proponent of it. Okay, the result is what the customer gets from the solution. So if, for example, uh, I'm selling cybersecurity software and the result is I've secured the network, the win is I don't get fired or, well, no, you, the win has to be stated in the affirmative. The win is... I get promoted because we've kept any regulatory issues or any security issues that we could have had at bay. That's my win. But actually the win then goes further because the promotion means I get more money. And because That's a problem with money, it. And because I've got more money, it means I get a bigger house. And because it means I've got a bigger house, it means my wife loves me more. And because my wife loves me more, I get more action at the weekend. Um, that's what I, and, and that's, that's, that's what I don't win. like about it. That's what but I don't that, like about but it. But that's the point is that's real selling. I think that's one of the not, killer apps. Because I of the don't book. think people go into sales campaigns to sell, Paul will tell me, to sell network security so people can buy bigger houses. I just people do not can get believe. More action so people can I get more do sex. not believe that, that, I don't know, any anybody in IT sales in the last year has actually thought about a strategic sale in that manner. Don't believe it. But that's what the really great guys are thinking. They're is, not doing that, though, I don't this? think. They're not doing that. They're not sat there going, oh, that's what a great car salesman thinks. The great car salesman doesn't sell you a car. He sells you the lifestyle. The car salesman doesn't sell it. The advertising sells you that. The brand. Anyway, let's let our panel talk while we're falling out. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Book Club. Yeah, boxing gloves. Ding, ding. Let's go. Um, So I I put a tab in this further along and I, I wrote in this with a big asterisk that says, this this was this was good stuff. Must reread this and do the exercise. So for me, this was probably one of the aha moments. The other elements, yeah, I've kind of seen variations on the theme. I think Mike's right. Yeah, people don't do this. I've not sat and truly done this. I've kind of maybe done a little bit, but not really properly thought about it in some sort of methodology. And I think. That back to your example of the NSPCC, this is what justifies why I should be happy to take 20% margin because there will be the results of that um, that win, as it were, or the results of that sale that are, are measurable. And within that, those people involved in that process will have had their own personal wins. 
And so as long as I have ticked those and met the result, i.e. the win result, as it refers to, then I've earned my 20%. Thank you very much. So are you saying, you're, are you saying your 20% is the uh, win? Uh, it could be in part. That could be the win, yes. Um, and maybe for me, I feel good about the fact that I've done a better job than somebody else who charged them 30% and because they're, they're only a poor old charity, right? A bit of altruism might creep in. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Mike, why, why do people buy Louis Vuitton, Mike? Loads of different reasons, Johnny, don't they? It's not a one reason answer question, is it? It's a 100% sizzle solution. All they're no, buying it's is sizzle. It's the, uh, it's, the, it's the best manufactured product in that market. No, it's not. It's 100% sizzle. Louis Vuitton is just pure sizzle. No, it, it, you know, there's no real sausage in the procurement. What, what wins and results are about is knowing that, yes, you've sold the sausage, but actually understanding think, how it sizzles for the customer. I just think it's... Too convoluted, too complicated. Go on, Steve. I was about to say, you can summarise the entire chapter up. It's emotion versus logic. Yes, you, you can. Emotional driver comes with it. Yeah, we buy emotion and we justify logically, as, as the old saying goes. Yes, Steve. Like that. Right. You can come again, Steve. <laughs> so, get in, so chapter 11, getting to the economic buyer, influence strategies and tactics. I, th I thought about this, and I always write before I read the chapter what I think is going to happen in the chapter. And then I go back, with all the books that I read, and I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. A book written in 1984 about getting to economic buyers. I thought, oh, this is going to have dated. <laughs> but actually, just the way it's written, it wasn't like that, I didn't think. I like Stu Heineke's whole thing about that. What's that? Just the, the, the whole concept of getting to the economic buyer. At some point, you just got to well, talk to I, someone. Yeah, you see, that was interesting, isn't it? Because that was a tactical view on it, whereas this is... Um, a strategic view on it, using yeah. the others around you, leveraging the other uh, buying influences. Do you think people get nervous when they, when they meet senior people? Yes. They seem to be very focused on that in this book. Oh, well, everyone's nodding. Yeah, I do. Yep. I think there's a point in your life where you cease to be nervous. There's a point in your adult life where you realise, eh, who are you? It, it, well, there is, isn't there? There's just a point. You get to a point of adult maturity where you realise, look, I don't care who you are. But I think there's also a point in your early adult life where you still look at people and think, oh, God, you're important. It's only when you, you realise how... It's only when you get your 40s and you realise how unimportant we all are that you realise that everyone else is pretty unimportant too. Um, and therefore you become less afraid of people, more confident, and, and your skills almost goes up a notch, doesn't it? What but, do you think about that in the context of Pareto, Steve? You know, you've got fairly young people phoning fairly senior people. Um, all about mindset. All about mindset. And I think um, it's, it's actually really interesting. I guess there's a moment they start doing it and once they start doing it, once they've had a few rejections and whatever, those that have the right mindset that say, oh, you know what? I don't care. And it's exactly as Jonathan said. All they do is, is those that are successful that we see being successful doing that is, is just instead of waiting until the forties and the fifties to get that, that mindset, they kind of develop it in their you know, 21 and say, well, it doesn't really matter. It's another human being I'm speaking to. Um, and I think some of it is about if I've got a genuine belief, I've got a good reason to talk to them, then I'll pick up the phone. If they don't want to listen, if they don't want to engage, fine, I'll just move on and find somebody else. But you know, that's what I'm seeing right now from 
again, a lot of the youngsters is they just adopt that mindset that Jonathan was talking about 25 years before the rest of us did. Yeah. What's fascinating about that is, uh, uh, you know, my daughter's 18 and a lot of the mates come round and it, it's, a, I think one of the joys of having older teenagers is sometimes you sat in your house and there's six or seven of them sat drinking beers downstairs in the, in the snug getting loaded before they go out and you, you go in and you start talking to them on a Saturday night and there's one that can't look you in the eye and they're nervous. And they've got no confidence. And then there's a couple that will actually walk into your living room, sit on your sofa and go, so Johnny, how are you today? And it actually does reinforce that there are some people who are, you look at them and think, oh, I know where your career will go. <laughs> You're going straight into sales. You are. Um, and you just look at them and think, well, oh, parents are in sales, got this, it's just an inner kernel of self-confidence. And it goes back to that whole thing of kid X had the gift of the gab. And it's not necessarily the gift of the gab. It was just that inner kernel of belief that why wouldn't I walk next door and talk to his dad for half an hour? Mm. And you see it in them at 18. Some people have just got that. And some people, it takes them 20 years to develop it until they realize that actually none of us are that important anyway. There's a bit here on why is getting to the economic buyer influence so tough? Um, And you've got a couple here that I think will stand out for everybody, which is the person in purchasing says I should just deal with her. All her calls are screen. She refuses to see me. I mean, that's just a perennial problem that's existed as long as selling's been selling, I think, isn't it? Lockdown's been good for somebody on the phone. Oh, it has, brilliant, yeah. Lockdown's been brilliant for this. I think coronavirus has completely changed the game when it comes to economic buyers, PAs aren't, aren't, aren't defending them. People just, uh, uh, in the last seven months, I've spoken to more senior level prospects than I reckon I've spoken to in the previous seven years. Because you can just pick up the phone and ring them. What do you find with that, Paul, when you've got your canvases? How easy are people to get through to that are in a, economic buyer positions <laughs> so i just remembered one of the one of your previous podcasts way back when and you were talking about golfing mates one who really thinks about it and one who's just thick but yeah. and, and, and yeah, yeah. applying that applying that logic to sales um let's just say we've got a, a member of our team who's can be a little bit scatterbrained should we say let's be polite um and he just just blunders in impervious to any setbacks knockbacks or anything else not phased at all whatever he just goes and just just calls them up. That's great. Um, and, yeah, and, and so although his results are sometimes a little bit dubious, the fact that he just doesn't care, isn't phased at all, and goes in there, there's there's something to be said for that. Um, I think you're right. I think what happens is I, I I reflect on my career and how I kind of came in, didn't care, then went through this denial phase of I'm not a salesperson, I'm a consultant. I'm more technical, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, dickhead. And then I kind of came back full circle again. and just like, I'm a sales guy and what? Yeah, so what? you got to buy from somebody. Um, and, and, and not being bothered about anybody's kind of thing. But as going through that consultancy kind of that, you know, that, that learning curve, I was quite fearful of, of you know, troubling people. And, and the fact of the matter is they don't care. Yeah. No, so, so what's they problem? don't yeah, care. Like, you are right. They do not care. So long as you make a half-decent call. Yeah, exactly. They don't give a shit. So, so why, why be troubled by you? You're the, the, you're the one with the issue, not them. They probably expect to be called by a salesperson, right? Of course they do. Yeah, 100% on. agree with that. Yeah, I, I, spot on. Spot on. I think that, and it has, I don't know if you found it, Michael, I'm sure you have. It, it's just easy to talk to senior level economic buyers at the moment. 
Well, I mean, this but is slightly off the edge. Slightly off the edge of the book, focus, isn't it? Yeah, and you and I do focus a lot more on the initial direct attack on the economic buyer. I, I actually think that uh, there's a lot fewer people cold calling, which helps people that are. Yeah. That the, I think the thing I will say on the calling the economic buyer, though, and, going, and, and having that conversation is, in my experience, and I've done it myself, too many people talk about the nuts and bolts stuff like they talk to somebody further down and don't realize that it's a very different conversation like for example talking to a cio you know they don't care about the speeds feeds benefit i've got people for that paul you know, just just you know, and, and too many people don't adjust the way they approach the conversation to suit the fact you're talking to a business person here now not an it person a business person or majority of people are and i think very that's where comment. it falls down yeah very good comment that so chapter 12 is about the coach. Another killer. Another killer chapter, this for me. So the coach has three definitions. One, I mean, they word it slightly different to how I remembered it, actually, but uh, um, somebody that favours your sale, somebody that's credible with the economic buyer, and somebody that wants you to win. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, I, I've always found... Now, what's interesting in what we do in sales recruitment is, so if, if we're going to approach a massive business and say, listen, I need to use me for recruitment, um, we have good credibility with somebody. So I've got one at the minute, big ERP company. Sales director likes me, wants to use me. He does have credibility with the economic buyer, but not enough credibility. So I'm just not into that account. It's fascinating because I, I had an experience last week with a client where it became a very complex sale and they signed terms. I've got two vacancies. I'm working on it. Literally the moment we finish this, I'll go back to work on it. And um, what was fascinating was the user buyer who I thought was my coach was not. And actually the person that became my coach was the head of HR, who was the technical buyer. And what, and, and it, it rapidly became clear to me that the user buyer had very little influence. My initial contact with the user buyer had very little influence in the outcome of the deal. And that actually the coach was the head of HR who had massive influence and coached me all. Literally, we had a call where he set me up for the call with the CEO and the chairman of the company. And we're talking a business, what, two and a half thousand employees. It's not a small business but the head of HR coached me to the nth degree before that call. And I would have never have thought he was going to be my coach, but actually he was the one that became the coach over time. And it, 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 but if I'm honest, it, it was an accident. I would have used the user buyer as my coach. I assumed he was until I realized he wasn't. Fortunately, I realized before it was too late, but it's fascinating so where the coaches come from. Yeah, so what was it about that situation then? That, that why, why was the head of HR your coach then? I think he'd made a decision that he wanted us as the solution at that point and that he then decided he was going to champion and drive me forward and make sure that we got that deal. I and also it, think he, he had high level of risk putting me in that call with the CEO and therefore he couldn't afford to look at Burke with the CEO yeah. and the chairman. And it was clearly a very, very 
um, what's the word I'm looking for, high involvement purchase for them as an organization. And what came out of the procurement over time and out of the conversation was they'd had several nightmares with UK sales hiring. And they were very, there was a lot of emotion and a lot of profound disappointment with previous recruiters and previous hires. So it would, it had become a, a solution that was being bought at CEO and chairman level uh, as economic buyers, where normally you'd seldom get that in an organization with a sales hire. It would normally be the HR director signs off some terms, but actually the user buyer is normally often the economic buyer. You think you'd have spotted that if you'd done your win result analysis? It, it's, um, hot, I'd have loved hot, to have known. I mean, <laughs> I, <laughs> they've signed the terms and it's all done, but it would have been fascinating. I wish I'd read, done the reading before it ended up in that campaign. But the reality is the outcome is the same. Maybe I was lucky. Actually, it was more by good luck than good management. Do you know, Johnny, you've just hit on something that I was going to say about this book. I, I think this book is brilliant. Truly do. But it's very time-consuming. As a process? Yeah. What you could actually do is just disregard it, just crack on and cover more ground, have a lower conversion rate and sell more stuff. And that's the... Absolutely. You know, if you own... If you, if you own a startup with 20 million quids of VC and your average order value is 50 grand, have you got the time to sit there and blue sheet every client? Or would you rather just hire 10 SDRs and just create that much pipeline item and convert at 3%, not 7 Well, then this is where that SaaS model kind of doesn't probably apply to this, as you said earlier, because if they're targeting, say, sub-enterprise, and my definition of that is sub-1,000 seats, or even maybe sub mid-market some 500 seats again my definition then it, you, you absolutely wouldn't spend your time on this because it, it just doesn't warrant it here's the puppy dog you want it don't you thanks next you know, turn handle get nut that's that's how they operate and i've, and I've seen those SaaS companies i've been inside them um, scale ups they call themselves now don't they yeah whereas i think if there is i would i would say that this becomes more appropriate when you've got three stroke four buyers whatever that are actively involved or would be involved in the process that's when you start and want to adopt some of these these strategies and some of the methods in here um i think without like there's one maybe two probably wouldn't bother correct and then chapter 13 is about competition I've got to say, we do have competition, obviously. I just never, ever get involved in it anyway. I don't see the point. Now, I, I disagreed with this. What they're saying is that in every deal, you focus on your strengths, uh, eliminate your red flags, and not worry about the competitive position. That's pretty much the point of the, of yeah, the chapter, yeah. isn't it? And it brought me back to a deal I won many years ago, back in the days when I was involved in the legal software sector where yes, I actually did use a blue sheet to strategically plot my way through the deal and we won it. It was a great deal, really significant at the time. And we won it against a much bigger competitor. But a large part of my strategy in winning that deal was trying to predict what my competitor's next move would be, what they would do, and creating a presentation that handled a lot of those objections. And a lot of why we won it was because we played a strategy directly against who we knew the other competitor was. So I don't 100% buy that. 
Because I think sometimes there's a point where you've got to be cute and think, well, listen, I know what's coming here. Mm-hmm. They're going to leverage, uh, right, if they're in the deal, they're going to be saying that to the customer. That's what they're going to be whispering into the customer's ear. And this is how I'm going to manage that. Surely that's yeah. good selling strategy. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Not what Mel Hyman would say. They would say that by doing that, you are uh, focusing on your competition strengths by virtue of the fact that you're, they're your weaknesses. I mean, I agree with you actually, Johnny, but that's not what Miller Hyman agrees with. Yeah, you've got to be subtle about it. But I don't think it hurts to know, right, I know what what Bill's doing down the street and I know what he's going to be saying to my client. What do you reckon, Steve? Therefore, my strategy is as follows. I agree. And again, it it depends how much time you're going to devote to a, a particular sales opportunity. But I think a decent sales opportunity, you always want to know who you're up against competition wise. And they do a good job actually in this chapter as a it's not just direct competition but it's where else could i spend the money uh, yeah. or what could we do you know, could we do it in house and i think they're great reminders that that's always competition as well and you've got to think about the alternatives that a, that a client can go down but I, I i'm with you johnny actually on this one i think um first point i would always start with is well, what do i think i'm bringing different but if i don't know what the competition necessarily brings to the table how do i know what i'm bringing is different i want to be able to focus on that but I've got to keep an eye out for the fact that my competition are going to be coming with what they see as their strengths. And I've got to think that's where my deal is vulnerable. So I've got to think about how I respond to that. And can I separate that off? Can I do some groundwork that's going to make their arguments less effective? Not going to do it in every sale, but I think for the big ones and the strategically more important ones for me, yeah, I'm going to spend, spend a little bit of time trying to think about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I wonder what's the cutoff point? At what point do you define, if you are leading a team, at what point does a deal go into a more detailed, high intensity, strategic planning process? Where, where's the cutoff? Well, sorry, let these two answer first, and then I'll give you my opinion. It depends. I know it's wishy-washy. <laughs> I know it's wishy-washy. I know it is. I know. Terribly um, but so. it, it really does depend. I mean, you can look at value of the deal, but in isolation, that may or may not warrant it. It could be that there's a low value to the initial deal, but that in that that current sales objective. But although that current sales objective's deal value is lower than might no, normally the threshold because of the potential value of other sales opportunities yeah. along the way, that's when you want to take that time and effort. Um, if there's complexity in the organization, if it's not quite straightforward, if you sense there's lots of little fiefdoms, I mean, you look at any of the retail banks, for example, I mean, Jesus, they're a nightmare. I mean, an absolute nightmare. And and same is true for a lot of FTSE 100 companies where there are these small fiefdoms and little power plays and the like. So regardless of the value of the deal you first in, you've absolutely got to sit and start to try and figure that out. Um, right. So that's, that's why it depends. That makes sense. Do you know, you're obviously right, Paul, because you're a man that's out doing it in the field. But in part four, they talk about strategy and territory. And then chapter 14, it talks about uh, ideal customers. Another I think actually, app. Oh, that in itself as a chapter, who should you be selling to? That is where to start with, actually, about getting you know the, the, what you're putting into your pipeline right. But I think that if you've got the right ideal customer criteria, 
then actually you should be doing Miller Hyman on those ideal customers. Because to take your point, Paul, you know, um, 50 grand versus half a million quid. If you're only going after half a million quid stuff and your target's a million pounds and you've got to make two sales a year, you'd Miller Hyman every one of them. Of course you Whereas would. actually, if you've got the top of your funnel like wrong, yeah. Whereas if you've got the top of your funnel wrong and there was loads of 50 grand stuff in there, then you could have wasted time and kill yourself. I can see Steve nodding. I think he agrees. I think you can create this on just on a single page. Um, and I think, you, you know, once you get behind the principles of this, I think you can rattle off something akin to not the full blue sheet, but just a, you know, a blue sheet on a page in five or 10 minutes. And I think if you do that very early on in the sales process, you can then make the decision about, do we invest a huge amount of time in this? Or is this just a, a smaller transactional deal that we'll work through and see where we go? So, you know, I, I think you can go you can go really big on this and do the full exercises and spend hours and hours, but I think you can do back of an envelope. A lot of this translates really easy to a back of an envelope exercise if you wanted to. Yeah. Yes, I agree with that. So I think I, the you know, ideal customer, Mike, is for me, or you and I both know, defining an ideal client has been incredibly valuable to us as a business. Yes, very much so. That but in what itself. Did you, but on chapter 15, it talks about the difference between demographics and, and psychographics. I think it's very hard to profile a company looking at psychographics before you get through the door. I mean, how would you do that? That's a tough one. Um, I remember thinking a certain major glass manufacturer uh, back in mid-2000s would be a great target because we'd not done much business with them, and I was trying to kind of build out. And quickly realized that the, the psychographics, the individuals and the general culture in that organization did not make them a good fit. And, you know, everybody's like, Kino will join up efforts with myself and the German guy. I went off to Gelsenkirchen, which is the arsehole of nowhere, and thought we were going to make some progress <laughs> and quickly realised, nope. But you only find that out once you got through the door, though, didn't you? So you couldn't put that, you'd already invested time in it before you realised yeah. that is my point. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're quite, and you've, and you've got to do that because even with the benefit, I think nowadays with social media and other tools at our disposal, you can try and get a sense of somebody's psyche and you can use the crystals and all these other tools to try and predict personality and all that good stuff. But you don't truly appreciate the power play and the politics within an organisation until you sit in that meeting and get a sense of that. And, and that's sometimes it's worth maybe burning that first meeting to qualify out. A lot of effort yeah. to burn a first meeting though, isn't it? I had a first meeting with a client the other week, Pricey, and I've walked away from a deal. Well, you know I do, Johnny. I mean, <laughs> I'm an absolute pain in the ass to deal with. Because the, I, it, it, was a, it was a lady, and she's she's a general manager, but she wants to hire a salesperson, but she's never managed salespeople before. And I, I just got to the end of the meeting, and I just thought, Johnny, what are you doing here? This is a nightmare client waiting to happen. Well, again, <laughs> that's segue into Chapter 16, isn't it, where it's talking about managing your your time, territory, and money. Interestingly, it breaks the pipeline down into four bits. Oh, that's chapter 17. Um, has, that, has everybody read this chapter 17 where it's talking about the sales funnel? I'm just looking at my book. Read it all, Pricey. Now, I'm going to ask a question, guys, about sales funnels. And this is a bit semantic, but I, I, it's something that I've thought a lot about since I read the book. A lot of people talk about pipeline but not a lot of people talk about funnels. The problem with the pipeline is it's a thin, narrow thing. Yeah. Isn't it? A pipe is a thin, narrow thing. 
and one thing only ever follows one thing in a pipe. You can't put lots of things in a pipe. You can only have one thing move on to the next thing to it to the next thing. Whereas a funnel is a fat thing that narrows into a thin thing. And it's really interesting that often I talk to guys, you know, Mike and I will tell you, it's a real pet peeve for us as recruiters when they come and see you and uh, you go, why are you looking? Oh, they pulled a rug from under my feet. I had a massive pipeline. <laughs> oh, you're laughing. You hear that a lot. <laughs> a lot. Right? You know, welcome to our world. A massive you hear that a pipeline. Lot. Just loads. But actually... It's it's a very nebulous conversation item. It's very great. It's very woolly. Pipeline. What is a pipeline? By well, definition. I, and one of the things I really like about this is they define funnel, i.e. best few. What, what's the phraseology they use, Mike? Oh, universe best few. Universe. Universe the funnel, best the funnel, few. Best. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and, and I wonder... I never hear anybody say to me, well, actually, I had some absolutely mental deals in Best View. They'll say I, I had a really big... got fired. <laughs> yeah. They don't say that. Never happens. Never hear so, that. I, I worked on this. I've got... It, it's, it's interesting because I came across this thought, wow, that's interesting. I, I've come to a similar position, albeit named a little bit differently, and that was in part, I read uh, Combo Selling, uh, Combo Prospect, sorry, Fanatical Prospecting, I'm sorry, and I was trying to really get into the guts of how we can improve the prospecting overall and, and, and really think about it, what simplify the stages, and so the universe, the grey and washed, above the funnel is my suspect pool, in the funnel's prospect pool, and best fewer deals, so pretty similar. Yeah. And throughout that, it's a methodology, and it's a above that. That universe is, a, you know, I don't really know anything. Might there be a fit? Once they're in the funnel, it's there's potentially a fit based on what looks good to me, straight up us. And then in the funnel is they've acknowledged a problem or a challenge that me or somebody like me can potentially fix. And then the best view is. Not only have they done that, but they they want to work with us or somebody like us. So it's kind of it's the same thing by by a different means with a different description. So I think that's perfectly valid, um, and I think there mm. are very distinct different ways that you go about working each of those stages. And I don't think people do that because you're right. They look at a pipeline, it's this big amorphous nebulous thing, without any really thought around what are the steps within that. I mean, I think the simplest of two stages within. Um, the suspect, the two stages of the prospect, and then you're in the deals. So I'll yeah. break that down a little bit further personally, but that's, that's, that's just me. Right, cool. Like that. Mike? Well, I, I was going to ask Steve, actually, but, but you know, our, our sales is slightly different, isn't it? Because we have a client and a candidate on either side of it. Um, but I go back to it, and we're going to come to the end of the book soon, which is, can you really be bothered with all of this nonsense? So why don't you just get more stuff in your pipeline and not worry about it? Well, they have got a chapter on strategy when you have no time. Right. Maybe we should Chap talk about that then. Chapter 20 is chapter twenty is how to do a fag packet strategic selling analysis. Uh, well, this is what got, Steve was talking about, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the, so you've got two, two types of fag packet analysis they talk about here. One is the 10-minute quick and dirty, and then the other is the crisis in the lift analysis. 
<laughs> which I quite like. You know, they've they've covered the bases as they would they themselves would say. So, I guess that brings us to the end of the book, really, and the end of uh, the end of this this uh, little wave of conversations. We have to put it to the floor. Out of yeah. ten, out of ten for strategic selling by Miller Hyman. Steve, let's hear it. Going to give it a good seven and a half out of ten. Am I allowed to give halves? Yeah, yep. seven and a half out of ten. Solid, really relevant, and I think I read a lot of it and go, you know, it's it, it's as relevant now as it was fifteen years ago. A lot of it, Mike. I'm going to praise it really highly. I'm going to give it a nine. Woo! With a caveat, with a caveat, my opinion on this book is everybody should read it, so you understand the concepts. Quite whether you'll actually use it or not, I don't know. But if what it means is you're sat opposite somebody and you have this flash of thought is, what's your single sales objective? Or are you the economic buyer? And that's the only thing you got out of it. Well, well, well worth reading. It loses a point because I think it's very impractical. I think it's too cumbersome. And I think really, if you've got a pipeline that's made up of, let's say, 40 prospects to, you know, eight sales, you just can't do this. <laughs> Absolutely no chance. You've got time. And that's where it loses a one for me. But I think everybody should read it anyway. Paul? Yep. I'll, I'll give it an eight. Ooh. Um, I think... I was going to score it a little less, but I thought that would be unfair. Um, and the reason I was going to score it a little less was to your point earlier around SaaS sales and, and the relevance in, in a lot of environments. But I think, you know, its application within the type of selling that it was clearly written for, i.e. it's not just that puppy dog straightforward, you know, sign up, etc. I think there's great value. And for me, it was around the win results and sitting and, and thinking through those and truly thinking about the psychology of the people in that buying process and, and, and start to think about how I could almost create that, that Microsoft um, OneNote kind of book scenario for each opportunity. Right. I think it's good. But with the caveat that only on deals that warrant it or, or, or deals that are as a result of a larger campaign to win strategically at a larger customer. That makes sense. For me, it's a seven and a half, an absolute breath of fresh air. I've enjoyed it more than I reckon I've enjoyed any of the last five or six books on Book Club. And it's been a great kick in the arse for me, thinking about uh, some of the work I've been doing and some of the opportunities that I thought were, (laughs) dare I use the word pipeline items, um, that aren't my I do question one, yes, can you be quick and dirty with it? And two, how relevant it is if I look at a lot of the clients I'm dealing with and the business models they have, mm-hmm. and how a lot of those business models are changing. But that's a bigger conversation about the impact of those big business models on the profession of selling itself, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you are running a complex sale where there are multiple buying influences, in any way or form, I think that is the killer book. I think it it's much more relevant than Challenger, much more applicable than Challenger. It's just a better book, isn't it? A better paradigm. It's just more useful. Well, um, I think you know, that, if you got me a 26-year-old salesman tomorrow and he said, which book should I read, this one or Challenger? I'd say, 
don't even bother with Challenger. That's the one that will make a difference to the way you win or lose. Yeah, I think um, I think this is a framework, whereas I think Challenger was a, a theory for the post-Google age. Yeah. Just, yes. just flip, flip spin selling. Yes, that, yes, that's I like that. It's a good summary. Right. Cool. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, You're welcome. You, an enhanced format of Book Club. It's been brilliant mm. to not just sit here and listen to Mike's voice for a couple of hours, actually. Um, so thank you so much for your contributions. Um, and we will get this edited out. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.